0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Sports Medicine at Healthy Baller, Teddy Wilsey. Thanks for tuning in to episode 285 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I am speaking to Teddy Wilson, who was recommended to me by numerous people um, but including the guys at Hawking Dynamics who recommended me based on his use of their technology. So always good to get a recommendation. But I looked up him up on Instagram and found that I already followed him and the strength coach therapist and realized that he had an incredible amount of followers and put some really, really interesting content out on Instagram. So that is the first place we start in this episode and the rise of social media and how it affects our industry as a strength coach, as a physical therapist, and how people can potentially use it for good rather than potentially it becoming um, a pressure and uh, potentially toxic as well so a really interesting start to this podcast then we discuss lots of different things from an athlete-centered care presentation that teddy gave to what strength coaches can learn from physical therapists and vice versa why that conflict does exist and how people can move forward in, uh, in resolving them issues so a really really interesting episode coming up with teddy which i'm sure you'll love This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU-STEP from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I measure you. now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I measure you, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Teddy Wilsey. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this afternoon, I'm delighted to welcome Teddy Wilsey. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, Rob. Pleasure to have you. Pleasure to have you. Thank you for giving up your time. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a a background on yourself, what you are doing currently, uh, education-wise, and what you've done in the past.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, the Director of Sports Medicine at Healthy Baller and started there about three and a half years ago and built the physical therapy practice there. So we have two PTs working with me as well. And we are a sports performance facility. So we've got wall-to-wall turf about four yards. Uh, now, before that, I, uh, I was a physio at a physician-owned clinic for a year. And prior to PT school, I was a strength and conditioning coach for four years. So really what my kind of mission is, is is combining the ideas of strength conditioning with physical therapy and practicing physical therapy in the context of helping people perform at their highest level.
0: Nice, very concise, love it. So healthy baller, so we spoke about this before, but what's the uh, what's the story behind the name and the business and what you guys wanna do?
1: Yeah, so uh, one of my partners, Blair O'Donovan, uh, he's the head strength coach for the Washington Wizards, the professional basketball organization here in the DC area. And Blair got started on making YouTube videos and he was making this series where he would finish them or, or start them with the, with the slogan, I'm going to help you be a healthy baller. And it was targeted towards high school, college age basketball players. He was doing stuff like walking into a Wendy's or a McDonald's and showing them what to order on the menu, uh, showing them quick drills they could do for balance, core strength, with, single leg strength with just a basketball at the gym. And so he made these series of videos and the term healthy baller kind of caught on. And that's where the business name came from. Nice. So what's primarily your clientele then?
0: I'm guessing it's not just athletes. Right,
1: yeah. You know, just just like any uh, private sector, we see a little bit of everything ranging from, you know, I might have a professional basketball player rehabbing a knee or an ankle in the morning, might have a couple high school kids in the afternoon, maybe a, a CrossFitter or a triathlete in the evening. So I see a pretty big range. I would say that the common thread is it's all people that are looking to perform at a high level, and that's really what attracts them to our our model. Because you know, in the states, there's there's obviously health insurance is kind of a big barrier sometimes, and so we actually don't accept insurance. We we run a cash based practice, and the reason that we do that um, is is to provide the highest level of care and to spend an hour one on one with everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. So your background as an s coach, strength coach, working more in the uh, physical therapy space. Is that right? That's right, isn't it?
1: Well, when I was a coach before I went to, so from about age 22 to 26, before I was in physio school, uh, I was a coach in, high, in the high school setting. So I was in private sector, high school. And my first kind of formative coaching experience was an internship with Buddy Morris and James Smith at, at University of Pittsburgh. And so that was, that was kind of the initial, like just diving right in. You know, Buddy's a super fiery guy, great a great mentor. Uh, took a took a couple months to kind of earn his respect, and uh, you know that was that was the initial exposure to to the West Side barbell kind of approach to strength and conditioning, if you will, and and all that. So mm-hmm. we've had a couple of people
0: on the podcast previously who have been physios and have done like an MSC in strength and conditioning but there's not many that I know of who've gone either way like mm-hmm. you have in terms yeah. of strength coach tomorrow, the, the, the physiotherapy way. So what was, what was the, um, I suppose, what was the vision there and what, why, why move away, not move away, but why, I suppose, integrate the two
1: mm-hmm. rather than move away. Yeah. I just, so, so for me, I, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to go back to school. I, I thought at the time, you know, back in 2010, when I was kind of 2011, when I was making that decision. I was like, I'm going to learn how to be a physio and, and magically fix people with my hands and, and learn all these really complex things that I don't understand right now. You know, fast forward 10 years, I realized it's actually pretty simple still at, yeah. <laughs> at, at points in time. But, uh, you know, as I'm going through school, I'm realizing through physio school, I'm realizing they're not teaching these people anything about running mechanics, strength and conditioning, squat patterns. And that's the reason why we hear so many bad stories about active people and athletes having these really kind of underserved experiences with physios. You know, you hear stories about athletes uh, with chronic hamstring pulls and all they're doing is dry needling and stretching, and then they go go start running again. And so for me, I wanted to combine the, the knowledge that I already had in terms of where these people want to be, and then the contextual factors of physical therapy and put all that together so that you can help people kind of bridge that gap or that gray area between rehab and performance. Mm-hmm.
0: So we're going to have a little chat about that a little bit later on, <laughs> but which will be interesting for me. Um, but you mentioned Blair's YouTube channel and how that mm-hmm. kind of started. And that brings me on to your social media stuff. And that's always in 2020 anyone with the amount of followers that you have is kind of very impressive. Um, where did that start? What was the vision behind it? Um, I suppose what's that led on to what kind of um, opportunities that has that brought you?
1: Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it's impossible at this point to really kind of separate my career trajectory with social media because there's been so many opportunities from it. The fact that I can reach out to a gym owner in Portland, Oregon and be like, hey, I'm going to host a course here and then Advertise on social media and sell tickets to it. It's it's incredible. It's it's really cool to be able to reach people, but it you know it started with just a desire to network and meet more people that were kind of in my tribe. Uh, I've been a major consumer of blogs and and tea, you know back in the original T Nation and Elite FTS days, and so for me consuming that information for really close to fifteen years now, I I felt like I got to a point in my career where I was ready to start talking more. You know, and so I, I got to a point where I was like, "All right, I'm going to start sharing some content. I'm going to start putting myself out there, see what it's like to stand in front of a camera with a microphone on me, et cetera." And it's not easy. Absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, so that's so that was that's always all of that's been a progression. But yeah, I mean, my original intent was it was with it. Rob was really just to network and to find other people to talk shop with, or like you know, let's say I'm going to. Uh, vacation in san diego reaching out to a coach that i know lives there and not being totally weird because they don't know who i am you know so <laughs> like, like wanting to like just wanting to talk shop wanting to train with other people uh it originally started like i would you know we're in the dc area i reached out to like uh you know sean foster at, at au uh, uh you know rodney king at uh howard like all these different kyle Tarp at maryland all these different college strength conditioning coaches or guys that i was you know trying to network with and And at first, it was just like, "Hey, kind of a selfish. I want to learn. I want to talk to these people." And then, fast forward three and a half years, and it's like I'm this guru guy that has tons of followers, and (laughs) and people text, you know, people DM me, asking me what my opinions are on hamstring mobility, and you know, whatnot. So, so how long does
0: that? How what what kind of time commitment is that at the minute? I mean, you've got what six hundred thousand followers. Yeah, yeah. What kind of time commitment is that for you? Well, let me let me kind of give context. So, sorry to but I don't I don't want this to turn into like a social right, media no, market kind of thing. But I'm really interested.
1: <laughs> I think other people are as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so to give context, when I was building it up, and I was focused on posting twice a day, and I was trying to respond to pretty much all of the DMs and comments. That was easily three to four hours a day invested on my phone. You could ask my wife. I'd come home, come home, sit on the couch, and I would tell her I'm working. And so then, over time, as it, as it started to grow, I was like, "Well, if this is going to grow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed it," you know. And, and she supported me in it, and it, I've made a lot of kind of sacrifices in terms of just how much the time investment of it. And so, continued to feed it. It continued to grow, and then it started to turn into these opportunities. And then my business started to grow. You know, two years later, I've got two PTs working with me, and I'm like, I don't have time to feed this the way that I used to. So these days, I would I would say I spend a couple hours a week on it, which is probably average for most people on social media, anyways. Um, you know, I don't think I've posted in, in almost two weeks at this point, so it's not something that is as regular for me. I would like to invest more time into it, but it's I too much other, too many other opportunities that feel a little bit bigger than just what's the next post you're going to put out, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I think the the use of social media, obviously, people are
0: on there hours and hours a day as you mentioned whether they're trying to build something or just just cruising but I think strength coaches sports scientists whatever it may be are seeing the value in in that in in being engaged or engaging uh, for the networking side of things or growing a personal brand etc what would be the what would be the number (laughs) this is definitely turning into a social media (laughs) thing but what would be the kind of key takeaway advice that you would give someone who has that aim like is it like you say the regularity of the post is it the kind of quality all that kind of stuff what would be the the bit of advice that you would give
1: yeah so i think i would take the two kind of factors that you mentioned the the regularity or the consistency and also the quality you know there's i made a kind of a pact to myself that i wasn't going to be the guy that was filming exercise videos from my living room I was like, you know, I want to film these in the gym. I want this to be high quality and uh, and attention to detail. You know, on my page, uh, the majority of the exercise posts you can reference because they have a label on them. Uh, the anatomy picture, that was kind of a, a hack. I was actually probably one of the first people that was doing that with the anatomy photos. But, um, you know, for me, I wanted to make something that has uh, value-based content. So it's not just selfies and and me talking about myself. Uh, content that people can refer back to. So I made hashtags with different body parts and then, you know, something that, uh, was kind of a standing catalog almost or an archive of, of information. And so, you know, a a lot of my, uh, higher trending posts, uh, they get more saves than they do likes. And so people are, people are coming back to it and checking it out later. And that's, that's really how I measured the success of the post.
0: Nice. Good work. It looks like you've, uh, well, 600,000 people say that it's worked, so you're all good. Um, So move away from the social media stuff, although (laughs) it's super super interesting, and I think people will get a lot of value from it. But um, moving on to movement mechanics, and that was something that I'd gleaned from one of your posts on Instagram, ironically. Um, But I just wanted to get your, I suppose, broad brushstroke thoughts about movement mechanics, and then we'll dive into kind of return to running and return to play and all that kind of stuff. When someone says movement mechanics in your setting, in your head, what do you kind of, what do you think of?
1: Overvalued. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So, you know, you have to learn all the rules and the constraints and the constructs before you can break them and deviate from the norm. But the reality is, is that we know as coaches, most people don't fit into the same exact, you know uh, model or mold that we want them to be in and so at first we learn what's what a proper clean or a catch looks like what a front squat supposed to look like what a back squat deadlift etc some lifts have a little more variation than others deadlift being one uh, but we learn those in terms of you know healthy athletes uh, strong people that are generally have pretty good form and then the further you get into your career you start to realize and it doesn't take long that Most people's form kind of sucks or a lot of people have issues. You know, how many college athletes, uh, when they squat, their feet are slightly rotating out as they descend because they maybe should have started with a little more external rotation in their hips. How many of them, uh, are their feet falling into pronation? Are there, you know, are they, are they posteriorly tilting in the bottom of the squat? Are they butt winking? You know, are they losing thoracic, thoracic spine tightness at the bottom kind of caving in, but is that causing a problem? Is that preventing them from getting the adaptations that they are after? I would argue that a lot of times the answer is no. So, you know, we fall into this pattern from a coaching standpoint where we where sometimes, and this is where the physio part comes in, we say, should we load bad patterns? Should people, you know, we talk about people having to earn the right to be loaded. You know, the, the coach that teaches with the PVC pipe for three months before, before they put anything on somebody's back, was that 3 months of lost time. Could they have been jumping, throwing medicine balls and doing a safety bar squat to a box to clean up their form and actually get some adaptation. So for me I like to approach mechanics from a simple some, from a simplistic standpoint. You know, is it safe enough? Does it look okay? Are they hurting themselves? Are they in pain? If we can pass those, if we can pass that criteria, we can slowly improve mechanics over time. Now, I'm somebody that's competed, you know, competed uh, in powerlifting, done a lot of weight on, on some different lifts. I totally appreciate the need for mechanics, and I can watch videos of myself as an experienced lifter and know maybe why tweak my back on that deadlift and see, see myself you know, flex maybe a little bit more than I should have, et cetera. But for the majority of the people that we're working with, they aren't at that point. They aren't loading themselves to that point. They're not 34-year-old banged-up lifters that are really kind of living in the past at this point. You know, so so we don't have to be as granular all the time, and we don't have to overthink every little thing. So that's really where I see the role in mechanics playing, and it's something that you know you have to reconcile from your early years as a coach and learning mechanics with what you actually see.
0: So in my head, I've got a, a an image of like a threshold, and that threshold over time for you has maybe broadened. Like it's a, it's a small threshold at the start. You see something. Well, you see lots of things, and you're freaking out. But then, as you've gone on, that kind of threshold of freaking out has got a little bit further and further. But does that threshold tighten up for someone like Blair, who's it? You know, with elite athletes, or when you guys right. get right. elite college athletes in with you,
1: in, in with you guys, does that does that threshold tighten up again? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. It's like the freak out threshold and there's a, (laughs) I'm going to steal that one for my next slide. (laughs) There's a graph that I've presented sometimes and on the X axis going across it's load. And at the beginning, it's a yoga, it's somebody doing a yoga pose warrior pose, whatever. At the end, it's somebody powerlifting. And then the importance is on the Y axis. And essentially as the load increases, the importance increases and we're looking at mechanics And so, uh, you know, with higher performing athletes, they're inherently going to transmit more load through their joints, uh, with athletes who are more experienced and maybe are a little bit more beat up for lack of a better term, they might have a smaller threshold. So that threshold of what's acceptable movement, that variation, it's going to decrease as you become more experienced, but that's the same way that training works, right? The, the further you get down your training age, the more dialed in and specific you have to be to realize adaptation. You're not gonna get faster by pushing a sled if, you're, if you're, you have 10 years of sprint training under your belt. But if you're 16 years old and you don't even really know how to run, you can get faster pushing a sled. So the same specificity that, and this is where the, the kind of the amalgamation of the strength and conditioning and physio comes into play, the same type of uh, principles of specificity that apply to training applied to movement mechanics in my opinion. And so, uh, you know, with that being said, you're also going to see high level athletes that develop what we might call maladaptive movement patterns. You know, people will be quick to point out his same bolt and and asymmetries in his trunk, or look at some of these Ethiopian runners that are, uh, you know, clocking extremely fast, fast mile uh, marathon times, and the valgus position of their legs, you know, but, but a lot of times these experienced athletes, they gain, they, they, adapt into those patterns over time because that's the most efficient way for them to move. And so my original mentor that I, you know I mentioned at the beginning, Buddy Morris, before I had any physio training under my belt, he was the one teaching me these ideas of like, look at that athlete. He's going to go play in the NFL for 10 years. Am I going to try to fix the way he jumps? No. Am I going to let it look egregious? No. But I will still load him and accept that that's the way he moves. So that's really where that, that idea kind of comes in. Mm-hmm.
0: One thing that I, um, that I wanted to ask you there on that point was how does that relate to when you're working with youth, youth athletes? Does that, is that a broad threshold? Is that a slim? Because at some points you do want to expose them to all these different movements and not be freaked out, but then you also want to keep it tight and encourage
1: good movement patterns and good, um, habits, I guess. Right, right. That's a great question, you know, and, I think with youth athletes, we want to expose them to more patterns and more variability, and ideally, we can even make it, you know, something that feels more like play for them. So, uh, you know, a drill that we use at Healthy Baller sometimes is we have them hold a PVC pipe and make them step over it with both legs as a warm up. You know, we have them uh, hold the PVC pipe overhead and get up with only using one arm, and then eventually progress to getting up, you know, without using any, and we're not teaching form. We have them run at an 18 inch box, put their hands on it and jump over it and then tell them to do a different trick each time, you know? So we're trying to expose them to different ways, different patterns, and let them kind of figure out and self-organize. And, uh, you know, I, I firmly believe that we as humans, the majority of us, we know how to pick things up off the ground without hurting ourselves. We know how to sit down and stand up. So, how much time do we really have to spend teaching squats and deadlifts? Now, yes, I can get really granular with a powerlifter with ten years' experience. That's where we talk about more specificity. But for a lot of these young kids, I, I'll like demonstrate one rep with a kettlebell deadlift, and I'll be like, "All right, you do it. Show me how. You know, show me how to pick that up off the ground, and just you know, do it with good form." And and most of them can kind of self-organize. Mm-hmm. And they'll say to friend, do it, and they'll. Right
0: you'll see the brain working and kind of figured out yeah
1: exactly and with youth you know their their attention spans are short they're not gonna they're not gonna really be dialed into all these different cues so you're not gonna tell them seven different things seven different internal cues from their big toe up to their up to their cervical spine you know just like let them let them do it mm-hmm.
0: and one thing we chatted about beforehand was the kind of thought process of actually training in these slightly more compromised positions right and I think that's I've seen a couple of times from various different coaches, again, going back to the on social media, and that seems to become a bit more of a trend. Is that something that you'd agree with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the idea of compromising positions is kind of a uh it's it's almost a fallacy in and it of itself, because in order to perform at our top, at our top end, we have to be in compromising positions. You know, if you can't open up your hips and you don't have the front side mechanics to really get that knee drive you're not going to be a good top-end sprinter. So then you're never going to expose your hamstring. You know, uh, you know, slow people don't pull their hamstrings. That's just the bottom line. And so, so for a sprinter, that's their compromising position. You know, we just had the NFL combine last weekend, and I watched on Derek Hansen's Instagram multiple players pulling their hamstrings. And it was right when they transitioned from, you know, a more cyclical or a more pistoning type of gait and acceleration to a more cyclical standing up gait. And it's right around that point. If they aren't able to expose themselves to that position enough times in training, they're going to be in trouble. If they're running inside, if they're on a woodway that's not quite reproducing the same mechanics as the ground. So the same thing goes for, let's say, valgus at the knee, right? We're used to the ACL rupturing at, with, a, with a, a, pivot, you know, a pivot shift of the knee at around 20 to 22 degrees of knee flexion. There's an insufficiency of the quadricep muscle. There's internal rotation of the femur and the ACL pops. We have to put people in those positions and train that strength so that they aren't in that time deficit, right? We need their quads to contract fast enough. Now, do we need to push them into valgus all the time? Do we need to put RNT bands around their knees? Probably not, but we need to help them self-organize just like with the youth athletes and figure out how to land in those mechanics, how to pivot and cut off those mechanics and improve over time
0: it's funny you should say that because i got that exact comment when i was 17 and pulled a hammy and it's like <laughs> you, you're not you're quick enough to pull a hammy so, <laughs> yeah that brought back some uh difficult <laughs> difficult memories um but you, you put something on your instagram and i think it was like you said before it was taken from someone else's around the jumping and then the hurdle um a of jumps and you, you watch it and you go oh there's a lot, there's a lot going on there, right. but then how did you, yeah, explain that and how did you view that?
1: Right. A, well, I, so I saw it story. on, yeah, I saw it on Coach Hootie's Instagram and I reached out to her and asked her if she would be okay if I used it as an example. And she said, yeah. And same with Corey Schlesinger too. I, I put some from when he was at Stanford with some of his, his uh, basketball players as well. And it was they were exhibiting the classic bilateral valgus pattern that you see with a lot of power lifters when they're deep in the hole. You see it with uh, weightlifters when they're catching their snatch, even they're clean too. And so what I wanted to do was instead of, now obviously I'm challenging the, the movement stiffs out there, but what I wanted to do was kind of from a biomechanical and logical rational place, discuss why this valgus pattern happens and how dangerous it actually is you know, uh, I personally don't know of any stories of bilateral ACL ruptures on landing. I know of bilateral patellar tendon ruptures on landing. I've heard of those before, but you know, the ACL is typically torn in a unilateral uh, environment where you're more of your weights on one leg. Oftentimes you're shifting into that leg and then pushing out of it. And that's where you get that, you know, you lose contact with the inside edge of your foot, your knee falls in a little bit. So I wanted to remind people that number one, ACL tears don't happen that way. Number two, there's some research and some ideas behind, you know, we recruit our adductor magnus and pull our our knees in a little bit because the adductor magnus in a position of hip flexion is a strong hip extender. So when you're more flexed, the deeper you go, the more your adductors can help in an overflow environment when you have, you know, tons of neurological flow to the legs and you're just, you're squeezing as hard as possible. You're making a goofy face your hands are writhed in some funny position and you're not consciously thinking about your form. That's when you drive through and you just recruit any muscle possible. And then from a landing standpoint, you know, once you get past that 20 to 25 degrees of knee flexion and landing, it can sometimes be advantageous to slightly internally rotate the hips that can help to attenuate some of the force. Maybe you're doing it more on one leg because you have a history of an ankle injury on that leg. And your you know, your ankle doesn't have the, uh, the same kind of eccentric strength and and fluid range of motion that we would like it to have. So there's a lot of explanations as to why this happens, but the bottom line is it happens. You know, think about like female volleyball players, how many jump, you know, they're doing hundreds of foot contacts per match and you see them when they catch cleans and their knees are clapping against each other. They're, they're long athletes. They're powerful, but they're not the most, you know, they're not built to be competitive weightlifters and their long limbs show that but we can't just never load them from a training standpoint if it doesn't look perfect. So we just try to help them figure it out as much as possible. And, you know, and and we can't, these videos that i posted are of division one athletes, people that are, you know uh, some of them are going to go on and play professionally. And it just shows that even at the highest level, and this is what's so interesting to me, Rob, even at the highest level, people still move the same. You don't, just because you're working with a crop of, of, NFL players, it doesn't mean they're all these perfect fluid movers. And sometimes the people that are, you know, perfect movers, they're not the best athletes. You know, uh, LaShawn McCoy was at at Pitt, and he went on to be one of the best running backs in the NFL for a number of years there. And he does not, despite his shiftiness, he doesn't have the most flexible hips. You know, so it's like, are we going to do FRC and and try to improve his mechanics and his mobility over time, or are we just going to let him be an athlete? And so there's, you know, we got to walk that line and, and maybe realize that sometimes what we do and the mechanics that we fix aren't quite as important as the actual person we're working with.
0: So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Teddy. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, we discuss uh, athlete-centered care, which is a presentation that Teddy has given numerous times that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into. We also discussed return to play versus return to performance and how that change in terminology can potentially bring a multidisciplinary team together, all um, moving in the same direction. Then we also discuss uh, what strength coaches can potentially learn from physiotherapists and vice versa, and why the conflict still exists in many institutions, many organizations um, that, that, that don't work together. So a really interesting chat coming up with Teddy in part two. So I hope you're enjoying part one, but a very, very good part two coming up. But just before we do dive into part two, I wanna say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics are the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customized cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. So the technology is constantly evolving, much like an app on anyone's iPhone or Android. They communicate with the users on a daily basis to make their system better and better. So, in addition to all that, they also offer the most competitive price for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system, which is obviously a huge bonus. So in April 2020, Hawking Dynamics are hosting an educational event in St. Louis, Missouri at the prestigious Maryville University, so this event is definitely not one to miss. So it's a full two-day experience headlined by speakers like Dr. Jason Lake, who's been on the podcast before from Chichester University. Eric Renehan, who is the Head of Sports Performance for the St. Louis Blues, Daniel Hicker, who's Head of Sports Performance for the San Jose Earthquakes, and Lauren Green from the University of California and their Sports Performance Analyst. So these are the leaders of force play research and technology. So to learn more about this event, head over to the Hawking Dynamics website, which is hawkingdynamics.com. And also, sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So, Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast, in Northern Ireland. So, if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness and they're the same on Twitter. So just coming back to that compromise position and um discussion and it's kind of a running theme throughout is there any examples of where you jumping for example or change direction where you may put a lot of thought into creating something a drill that actually does expose them athletes to them kind of positions any examples that you could potentially give us to paint people's paint a picture in people's minds
1: yeah, absolutely. So I actually use that term expose quite often. And I tell people that I'm trying to expose them. If, if I find something that they're bad at, that's a good thing. Because, you know, uh, we the physio process is an ongoing assessment. And you're always trying, just like strength conditioning, you're always trying to find what your athletes need improving. And so an example for a high speed running type of drill, uh, you know, say what you want about sprinting drills and the importance of drills versus actually sprinting i like sprinting drills to expose athletes to those longer hamstring lengths you know so uh high knees cyclical running uh unilateral skipping where they're just focusing on one knee drive um, wall accelerations where they're maybe they're standing perpendicular to the wall with their hand leaning against the wall and just focusing on getting that that cyclical motion and then kind of you know use a cue like strike a match with your foot and and driving your knee up and then driving your leg back and through. um, That's something for hamstrings. For ACLs, single leg landing and cutting. You know, we spend a lot of time working on cutting and single leg landing. And we will, cutting inherently being a frontal plane type of movement, we will add a frontal plane load to that too. So I'll hook somebody up where a band or a a Kaiser machine is going to pull them into more of that side that they're cutting into. You know, so let's say the Kaiser is my right. I've got 12 pounds of resistance on it, a belt around the the athlete's waist. They're going to cut into their right and then push out to the left. So they're going to cut in, try to feel the inside edge of their right foot. They're going to make sure that as they do that, their left leg doesn't fully extend because we don't, you know, we can't create any power when our legs are fully extended. So we need a little bend on the knee there. And then they cut out of it. And so there's a lot of drills that you put, that you set up for somebody to expose them in a way that they will get better over time. And if it exposes them too much, we regress it. We turn them around so that the Kaiser or the band actually assists them, you know. And and uh, if we have our logical progressions and regressions there, then we can kind of take somebody along the path and without changing the training too much, we can turn it all the way from rehab into performance training.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. We're well, just moving on to the next point, and it's something that we mentioned right at the start, and that was the the crossover between strength coach and physiotherapist and one thing that one guy that comes to mind who's been on the podcast before does a here in the UK does a, a number of uh, presentations. I think he's actually called it why we love three sets of ten and it's actually a strength he's <laughs> a strength coach who's got plenty of experience at the English Institute of sport um football, mountain biking, lots of different stuff but actually gives this presentation to physios and it's super super popular um really good guy as well but what's your perception of I suppose the education that a physio may go through and what's lacking there and then we'll maybe dive into some of the things that that come off the back of that
1: yeah yeah so it's I love that why we love three sets of ten it's so true I mean that's really what you learn in terms of uh, in terms of strength training there was we had one lecture that covered on strength training we have more than one on strength training but we have one on strength training that the last three slides of it showed, three different periodization models and that was it and it's not that physios need to come out of school understanding daily undulating or or you know linear or whatever or like a yearly plan for an uh Olympic weightlifter but they come out of school or we come out of school rather with a very very surface level understanding of how to create adaptation and the reason and adaptation from from a performance standpoint. And the reason for that is that physio is such a broad degree. You know, you half of us are working in hospital settings, working with people, helping them walk after strokes, spinal cord injuries, and, and all of that is very important. And it's not going anywhere. And, you know, our general population as a whole isn't really getting healthier, they're getting less healthy. And the more joint replacements we do, the more and the more back surgeries, the more physios we'll need to cover the back end there, no pun intended. And so, you know, uh, really strength and conditioning and physio and, and sports performance is a complete niche. It's, it's We're like, I don't know, less than 5% of physios probably. So the reality is that you come out without that education. And if you want to be a successful physio that works with athletes, and a lot of people do, especially because it kind of sounds sexy, you have to self-educate. You have to do what I was talking about at the beginning, networking with other strength coaches, spending time learning from people that Maybe, you know, in the, in the States, we have a DPT, a doctor of physical therapy, and sometimes physical therapists think, well, I'm a doctor now, so what am I going to learn from a strength coach that has their bachelors, you know? And it's like, you're going to learn a lot if you want to. Uh, so you have to, if you want to, you know, put yourself in the position to understand more than three sets of 10, you got to get out there and learn from from other coaches and people who are really deep into the strength world.
0: I watched a presentation and I've mentioned this um, a couple of times uh, on the UKSC website over here mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a physio who a guy called Dan Lewinden who wrote um, high performance training for sports, which is super super popular. and um, his presentation was uh, included a big section on the, the switch in mentality or the the switching terminology that he was using with his with his team from return to play versus return to performance. Mm-hmm. And I think he what, what he spoke about there was that subtle difference had brought about a significant change in the way the physios actually thought about their role. And it yeah. was previously maybe enough to just to get them so they could walk out the door okay without any pain. But actually, the return to performance is actually getting them back out on the pitch to where they were before they're going to play on a Saturday or play on a Sunday. Is that something that you – is that switch something that you see happening over there as well? Or is, yeah, is that something you see happening up there as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the second physical therapist that I was fortunate enough to bring on, uh, last August, she's, she's great. She was a division one college athlete herself. Uh, we gave her the title performance physical therapist and that's because she works with a lot of athletes and she, that's, you know, she did an internship at EXO. She has her CSCS coming out of school and, uh, you know, there are more physios that want to be performance physical therapists. And I think that the title is, is something that's important, you know, in the strength and conditioning world, they love playing around with titles and names, (laughs) you know, director of sports science, director of, of human performance management, you know, et cetera. And so with PTs, I think it's important that we can, that we start to separate ourselves a little bit and distinguish what we're actually doing, because from a medical necessity standpoint, the original, reason to uh justify an intervention people just have to be out of pain and be able to like you know wash their own hair and and tie their shoes and then like they're good to go walk down the street you know and so um uh, that's obviously very different than sprinting at you know 15 18 miles per hour and so um uh, we have to differentiate that and the way that you do it is by giving yourself a different title and doing things like interning at EXOs, getting your strength and condition certifications and and networking with these people and learning from them and learning their craft so that you can then bring that into your physio brain and, and blend those ideas. Do you
0: think from a physio point of view, they may see, I mean, there's a, the perception of a strength coach, like you say, what can I learn from them guys? Right. But there's also like the amount of the amount of strength coaches get off on Excel periodization models and all (laughs) that kind of stuff. Do you think like and whether how how much, what percentage of that is actually useful or just keep them entertained? Like who, who knows? But from a physio point of view, do you think that's quite intimidating for like how much there is to know of that side of things when actually in the reality of their job, they don't need to know all that, but just a little bit of knowledge is better than the three sets of 10 that the sticking down on the rehabilitation chief
1: there in that clinic. Yeah. You know, it, it can definitely be intimidating. And I think that's like a lot of professions If you know, there's a lot to know that, that you aren't currently aware of. And, you know, the Dunning Kruger effect, you know, you start to learn something, you start to learn about something and then you realize that you actually don't know as much about it as you, as you thought. And, and, you know, uh, that was actually, I think buddy was the original exposure of that for me too. Cause he used to always say that the more I learn, the less I know. You know, and so uh, he didn't create that quote himself, but he he really championed it. And so I think for PTs, uh, for physios, we don't need to know all of the background of long-term periodization. We don't need to understand mesocycles, macro necessarily, but we need to understand how to progress people. A lot of physio progression is linear because if you get to a point where you really are like deloading and and changing and waving things over time, they're probably ready to work with coaches. Unless it's an extenuating circumstance and they had a really bad injury and, you know, one of those like year plus year long plus rehabs, which, which they happen. But, um, you know, we don't need to understand all of that, but we need to understand how to progress with multi variables, you know, how to maybe reduce the number of reps per set and add a set so that we can get a better training effect by increasing rest time. You know, we need to understand tempo and the impact that a slow tempo would have versus a fast one. And we need to understand assessment and whether your athlete is struggling with single leg hopping, uh, whether doing five second eccentric with a three second pause, rear foot elevated split squats is the best exercise for them. If they're struggling with power production, you know, they're struggling with impulse there. So get them moving fast. So for us, as we get further along with it, it feels like common sense, but for a lot of young physios, And coaches, too. They just don't know these concepts yet. They don't know how to apply the assessment, what they're seeing with their eyes, and what to assess with the best possible exercise intervention. And so that's where, you know, uh, to kind of circle back and answer your question, that's where they just, they don't teach that stuff. And it seems like a lot to digest. And so you just kind of, you got to kind of start learning from the coaches, man. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Well, one of the last points I want to make, and we've got we've got plenty of time, so it'd be cool to dive into this. And it's loosely based on what I know from one of your presentations about uh, athlete-centered care, and a comment that you made in a, in the email conversation that we had uh, before jumping on that a big problem that you've seen in the past is that lack of communication between the various different parts of the team, whether it be a strength coach, sports scientist, physio, mm-hmm. physio coach, assistant coach, etc., etc., etc. In terms of that communication and and actually building a plan for someone the day of or the day post injury, what's that what's that process look like for you in an ideal world? And what are some of the issues that you've seen in the past that may prevent that that gold standard process from happening?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the thing with athlete centered care and in an ideal world, everybody's on the same page and everybody's coordinated. That never happens. And you don't learn a lot about that when you're coming through, when you're, you know, like we said earlier, the example of just learning about mechanics, you're, you're first, you're just learning all these basic rules. You're not learning about the actual implementation of these processes. And that's where a lot of times the challenge lies, you know, communication has become more popular to talk about with like Brett Bartholomew doing a good job with his book. And, and you know, a lot of these coaches are talking more about it, but, and that sometimes is communication between the athlete and the coach but it's, it's all the same. You're trying, you want the athlete to be bought into to the process and you want them to, to be that conduit that can help you to connect with the sport coach, with the athletic trainer, with the, you know, the college recruiter if they're in high school. And what I have found with a lot of the high school athletes that I work with, the majority of them are going on to play sports. A lot of them are D1 athletes and we work together through college too. If they, you know, uh, are back in town. But what I've found is that there's so many different pressure points for them. There's so many different people leaning on them and they're really hard on themselves too. And so in order to really help them, we need to get to the bottom of that. And maybe it's a discussion with the athletic trainer at the school about, uh, can, you know, can they actually sit out some of these runs because they're coming back from a hamstring injury and yes, they played last game, but conditioning runs are not a good idea right now. You know, I had an athlete who re-pulled his hamstring and ended up sitting out for the whole playoffs because he made his way back into a game, grade one hamstring two weeks back, made his way back in, pulled his hamstring and punishment runs on Sunday. You know, so, and, it's like, and it's like his coach, and this is a guy that I've gone out and had beers with, and a guy that was a professional athlete himself, his coach thought that because he was back, he was back. And there's no, there's no understanding of load management. And that was the other thing I was going to mention was load management in the context of, you know, periodization is a way to manage load. And that's something that I think people are understanding more about. So that's where physios are learning about the concepts of periodization without actually learning the periodization, right? Load management. And so if you can really, a lot of that, if you if we want to talk on a physiology standpoint, not even the communication and the importance of confidence and all that, but the physiology the important thing with everybody getting on the same page is load management. And if the coach isn't doesn't agree with the strength coach's recommendations or the physio's recommendations, we can get into trouble. And it's not that I have to be right all the time, but I want to have that line of communication. And I want to talk to a coach. And you know, I work with a lot of swimmers. And in addition to variables of intensity and practice time or, or distance swimming, swimmers, one of the big variables for them is uh, after shoulder injury, what stroke they're doing whether they're doing a fly or a freestyle or, you know. And so I'll talk to the coach. I have one coach that I have a really good rapport with, and we'll talk about wave loading fly back in. And he is totally down with that kind of that periodization model of multivariable progression. And we've sat down and gone over tables together and talked about, you know, bumping volume up and then pulling back. And so for him, he, he understands it. And then he also can talk to his. Athlete about it because he accepts the fact that his athlete can come back, can compete at a high level, but still is recovering and is less than a year out from shoulder surgery and still needs that special attentive care. So that's where I've found that everybody's outcomes, I do my job better, everything works better when we can all communicate and be on the same page. But if you have a coach that's kind of denying it or they're very binary, they're like, either they're better or they're not. Are they, are they ready? You know, then it's just it's tough. It removes all the nuance. It, it simplifies things. I like to simplify things, but it simplifies things in the wrong direction. And uh, that's been it's been a big focus of my career as I've gotten further along. You know, because that's that's something that no matter how hard you work at it, there's always going to be challenges there.
0: It's difficult because it, I suppose in them high pressure environments, whether it be a collegiate setting or professional setting if that player who's injured and is in the grade one hammy and has got two weeks because the playoffs are coming up like that guy's playing like regardless that guy's playing so it's that difficult he's got to be ready to play because he hasn't played in two weeks he's got to be yes he's fresh but is he ready all that kind of balancing act of um of getting that player ready for the ready for the big game or whatever game it may be um if the pressure's there from the head coach yeah
1: Yeah, there's a balancing act there. And then, you know, the the story I was telling, there's the balancing act in practice. It's like understanding that the way hamstring injuries work, the way soft tissue injuries work, somebody's really at a much higher likelihood of re-injuring themselves for a period of four months. And so it's just understanding that, you know, and I think that sometimes at the professional level, they might do a little bit better job of managing that. But some of these younger athletes that I work with, there's just – they have the same pressures, internal pressures on themselves, but their coaches are maybe not quite as attentive.
0: Mm -hmm. I suppose if you've got a clear plan from a head coach or an assistant coach or whoever's taking that that session that day, as long as you've got a clear plan of what's going to happen, then you know the mechanics behind the hamstring injury. You can then dip that athlete in or out depending on what's actually happening. Because we've all had coaches who say, it's going to be an hour session with X, Y, and Z, it turns into a two hour session with A, B, and C. Um, so I suppose that 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 communication and plan needs to come back towards the performance staff as well as away from the performance
1: staff. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, in an ideal world there's, which was kind of the initial question, like what would it look like in an ideal world? There's somebody that's managing and thinking about the the, the load on the players from a holistic standpoint and you know you could even do it through uh kind of the more traditional uh sports science ways that we're measuring people with you know putting accelerometers on them etc and seeing when when fatigue's hitting in and maybe they don't need to be working in that level of fatigue right now you know so there's a lot of different ways that you can manage and look at that uh, you could look at you could you know one thing i'm working on with the high school lacrosse that i'm working with right now uh, he's coming back from a series of groin injuries and You know, I'm talking to him and and his athletic trainer about prioritizing practice because he's playing right now, but his groin is still a little shaky and it's, you know, but he's good to go. But I'm like, prioritize your reps, things with your team, fundamentals, things that you're not going 100%. You need to be in for every single one of those. Punishment runs. Do you need to be out there for every one of those? You know, or or we call them punishment runs, but like conditioning, you know, and so uh, it's yeah, it's it's really an act from a load management standpoint. It's it, You can't be binary. You have to prioritize, and um, it's just challenging, and that's where the communication thing comes in. And then you have egos on top of that, and some people just quite frankly don't really want to hear advice from somebody else, and so there's – yeah. It's always fun dealing with that stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned the term load management quite a few times. I think that was – that's obviously a term that's now fed its way into the media, right, right. and I think it was – I came across the States in December and that was kind of at its peak around the guy, the Clippers. Uh, Zion Um,
1: Zion Williamson.
0: Yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was at its height then I thought, I wonder what effect this is having because it's in the media now and it's a a term that fans are talking about but don't really know. I wonder what kind of pressure that's putting on performance staff and organisations because obviously people are up to paying for tickets to watch the best player and he's been his load has been managed and everyone knows right. what that means and basically he's not playing. Um so I just wonder if it's actually having a it's having a positive effect because people more people are getting to know and more exposure to it. But then is it negative because that knowledge isn't really there? It's just a weird term that means this guy's not playing.
1: Right, right. I think for fans, a lot of them they understand it, but they wouldn't be happy if, you know, they went, they went to see LeBron one day and they kept their Ferrari in the garage. You know, they would not be yeah. too happy about that. Uh, but, you know, uh, Greg Popovich did that for years with the San Antonio Spurs. Of course. Like going back to the Tim Duncan days and maybe even like the David Robinson days. I mean, like he's been doing that for a long time. And they also have been one of the most successful NBA franchises over the past 20 years. And so it's not new – uh, to everybody, I think it's just more popularized, and, and it's interesting. It's an interesting discussion too, because maybe these athletes are too high performers now. You know, maybe they're maybe they're putting so much force through their joints. Maybe we're getting them so strong and so fast that eighty-two and eighty-two game season is going to break them down. Whereas you know, the slow athlete doesn't pull their hamstring. The athlete that can't jump probably doesn't get patellar tendonitis as much. You know, so it's like there's a lot of factors there where we are folks focused so much on creating these high performers that sometimes they can't, their bodies can't hold up to the, uh, the nightly, the nightly performance that, that they're putting out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's good overall for sports. Uh, it's, it's just something that people are going to have to reconcile with and, and understand because, you know, as, as a coach, it, it drives me nuts when I'm at a, at an event and I hear a fan, you know, uh, dashing on a player or calling them a wimp for not being out there or whatnot. You know, it's like these, these people want to be out there. They're, they're humans. They're at, humans first, athletes second, you know? So um, there's always going to be annoying people that, that don't appreciate it, but I think it's good for sports overall. Like you say, the bar's going up all the time. One gets better,
0: therefore, the other one gets better, and it just goes yeah. up and up and up. And just today I was hearing the radio over here that they were, they're thinking about putting another competition in, in soccer uh, during the summer. Which is the off season, so these guys never, never stop. Like it's just the season. Then every two years they have a tournament, whether it's the Euros or the World Cup. Then that of they actually do get off. They're talking about putting another competition in there, and like every club, like a, what do they call it, International Champions Cup or something? Like eight teams across Europe, and each club will get like thirty million. So every club's like, yes, bring it on. But these players just getting absolutely hammered, and then they, they, they wonder why. Injury rates are either going up or staying the same, and not not reducing despite all the investment right. in it. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and they're,
1: and they're higher performers. You know, the 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 more you squat, the stronger you are, the less frequently you can perform at what is your relative maximal maximum. You know, and, and the more time you have to spend in that seventy percent range, eighty percent range of intensity, and it's the same goes for these athletes. That the higher you jump, the further you get along in your career progression. The less you can actually do that. And recover from it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So
0: just a, bit of a, a roundup, if if people want to reach out to you and have a little chat about anything that we've discussed or anything else for that matter, where's the best place for
1: people to go and contact you? Uh, in- Instagram is probably the best place. You know, my, my name on there is Strength Coach Therapy. Um, I also have a, a blog that I'm running and a part of uh, citizenathletics.com. And uh, uh, we also, I'm also part of the I run the Citizen Athletics Instagram along with my partner for that, uh, Sam Spinelli. And so that's another place that you can kind of reach us and see what we're doing. Any writing, any
0: places apart from the, like you said, the, the website, any external writing going on? Uh,
1: not really right now.
0: Okay. No yeah. cool. Plenty going on by the sounds of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Cool. Okay, mate. Well, I'll put all the links up so people can reach out and, and have a chat if uh, if they if they so wish. So thank you for coming Fantastic. on. Really, really do appreciate your time and uh, we'll keep in touch.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks tuning in to episode 285 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Teddy. So big thanks to Kitman Labs, Black Box Fitness, U, and definitely Hawking Dynamics based on their recommendation for this excellent episode with Teddy. All for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run and it's or would not run in its current form without these guys so if you're in the market for any of their products definitely check out their website and uh, and have a look what they can potentially do for you so obviously big thanks to Teddy for coming on and I look forward to speaking to him again and keeping in touch because he's a great guy and I love the chat that we had today so thanks for tuning in and I will chat to you next week